Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And I'm really pleased this morning to have two guests with me. I have Dr. Kathleen Sluka and Dr. Kazuhiro Hayashi, both in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. Welcome to both of you. Well, thank you, Dr. Jetty. We're happy to be here and discuss this article. Thank you. The title of the article is Preoperative Exercise has a modest effect on postoperative pain, function, quality of life, and complications. And this was a systematic review as well as a meta-analysis of the existing literature. Let me start by asking you about one of the background issues that you mention in your article. You note that about three-quarters of patients experience moderate to severe pain following surgery, and, and most importantly, from my point of view, acute pain after surgery transitions to chronic pain in as high as 50% of individuals with some common operations. Could you talk a little bit about why the prevalence of moderate to severe pain is so high, as well as the transition from acute to chronic pain? Those figures struck me as very high. So I'll start with the acute pain after surgery, and that's really expected. And the amount of acute pain you get after surgery really depends on the type of surgery. So something like total knee replacement is a more painful surgery than a third molar extraction. And so the management of those postoperative conditions was very different. So when the study that looked at that and quoted 75% moderate to severe pain, it wasn't really clear which surgeries they were talking about. But it is expected, and we have made some progress in how to treat some of those pains. But you're right about the transition to chronic pain. That's that's even more concerning, and it, and it's something that we've in recent years really started to think about more. And we're thinking about things like total knee replacement. The transition rates are somewhere around twenty to thirty percent. After thoracic surgery, it's much higher, closer to fifty percent, depending on the literature that you read. And so those are really high rates. And why do we have such a high prevalence? And I think we don't know the biology yet. We don't know all the factors that contribute to that transition to chronic pain. So there could be a number of factors. There could be factors that are inherent in an individual that helps them to recover and uh, from the surgery and others that are inherent in an individual that sets them up and makes them more vulnerable to developing chronic pain. So I was just going to highlight, because we don't know that biology, there is a new study that we're involved in that is funded by the National Institutes of Health Common Fund. And this is a really large kind of a transformative study that is going to look at biomarkers of the transition from acute chronic pain after surgery. One of those surgeries is total knee replacement. The other is thoracic surgery. We're enrolling 2,800 individuals before surgery and following them for six months. And we will look at biomarkers before surgery. We'll look at them in the acute period postoperatively. 
we will be looking at things like all of our psychosocial factors, which we know are predictors of the transition to chronic pain, things like depression and anxiety and high levels of pain. But we're also going to be doing brain imaging. We're going to be doing a series of omics testing. So we'll be looking at genetics and proteomics, metabolomics, extracellular RNA. And we're gonna do this to hopefully come up with a signature of maybe the top 10 things that will put someone at risk for the transition to chronic pain or even promote recovery from chronic pain. So this is, you know, in the process, we've got, you know, about half the population already collected. And eventually this big data set will be open to the public. It's a really big effort across the United States with um, more than 100 investigators that are really looking at trying to begin to solve this problem. Because until you know what's happening in the individuals, you can't begin to ask, how can I treat that? So I, I, would, I would not be surprised if the biomarkers are different across many different types of surgery, types of individuals. I can see why you have such a large sample size. That's going to be a fascinating study to analyze. It, it is. We have a lot of statisticians to try and think through what the best analysis plan is, because really that's going to be beyond our capabilities. But, you know, with with good statisticians and, and good pain scientists together, we can begin to look at that. It is going to be an amazing data set that hopefully we'll be able to, you know, begin to identify targets and mechanisms and maybe even serve as a basis for future trials. Well, let's dig into your review preoperative exercise, which you also note, some people refer to as prehabilitation. You define it as the process of enhancing function in an individual and to enable them to better withstand the stress of, of surgery, as well as reduce postoperative pain. You've mentioned mechanisms in the study that's ongoing. What are some of the main presumed or hypothesized mechanisms by which prehabilitation might in fact be expected to reduce postoperative pain? So that's um, a really interesting question. You know, as physical therapists, we are really think about the role of exercise on function. And indeed it improves function, but I think it's much more than that. And we've been in our laboratory studying the mechanisms of exercise and prevention of chronic pain for over a decade now. And so we've got some kind of underlying mechanisms that we know that exercise does that sets up the body to not respond to an insult subsequently. And what we've discovered is that there are a number of alterations in the central nervous system that really amount to an increase in endogenous inhibition. There's increase in opioid and serotonin within the central nervous system so that we have more opioid tone, more inhibition. And at the same time, we have a decrease in excitability of our central neurons. So that when a subsequent stimulus comes in, it doesn't have as great an effect as it does if you're not an exerciser or a sedentary individual. And in this case, we were doing these in animal studies. We've also discovered that exercise has kind of a similar effect in the immune system where it sets the immune system up so that it has a greater anti-inflammatory and healing state and less of an inflammatory state. So again, when an injury occurs, we're more likely to recover from that. 
And so what we really think is happening is that the nervous system and the immune system is just in a different starting state, a different set point, so that it won't respond in an exaggerated way to transition to a chronic pain state. So we really think that there's multiple mechanisms and that exercise is way more than improving function. It's really a multimodal treatment that's setting up our nervous system and our immune system and our body to respond in a more uh, in a less exaggerated way to the insult itself. So there's a real protective effect going on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, being physically active is a good thing, right? We talk about that all the time as physical therapists, right? We need to be physically active. We need to make people more active, but it, it does protect you. There's big population studies that say that high levels of physical activity or moderate physical activity in a population reduces your risk for transition and development of chronic pain. Yeah. And, and I think that's really why, because it just changes your system a little bit. Maybe that's where we all need to be. Let's talk about the studies that you reviewed. There were 28 studies across several different surgeries. One of the things that really struck me, I was not surprised, 23 of the studies involved joint replacement surgery. I expected that. But 15 of the articles came from Europe as compared to eight from North America and five from Asia. I was surprised by the small number of studies from North America as compared to Europe. Well, why do you think? I know you don't know why, but why do you think there's so few in, in North America? Yeah, sure. So we really don't know why that is. But so it is possible this may have something to do with a difference in healthcare systems. So like Europe or some Asian country have a universal healthcare system with a single payer, usually the government that makes access to care available to all. So therefore, much of treatment can be standardized to some degree and all can have access to prehabilitation. But in the United States, so not all individuals can afford to participate in prehabilitation. Yeah, that makes, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but for this study, so these were randomized control trials supported externally, so may not play a role in this case. So it is hard. Were more of the North American studies in Canada as compared to the U.S. or not? You know, I don't know that. We would have to look. That's a good question. That would You would wonder, right? Well, it would be interesting. It would, it, it would uh, speak to the reasoning that, um, that you just talked about. Because if that's the case, then you would expect maybe more in, in uh, Canada. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the findings. You found that uh, preoperative exercise did have a statistically significant, moderate, uh, impact on post-operative pain. You looked at three different time points and there was an effect in less than two months and there was an effect in the three to five month period, but not six months and beyond. But why do you think there was no long-term impact? Yeah, so in our review, so there were fewer studies at six months. So for example, so seven studies for pain, with a total of uh, 200 subjects and three studies for function with a combined total of 100 subjects. So 
these were small studies and there may not be enough to make a conclusion. And the largest study had only 82 subjects. So it is about 40 per group. So if we are examining postoperative pain in all individuals at six months, 75% will not have pain. So in order to really look for prevention of chronic pain, we would need a substantially larger sample studies that then might need to either categorize people into groups based on outcomes at six months or use some more sophisticated statistical to examine if we are really deducing the incidence or severity in a different way. It would be really interesting if we had better evidence on the impact of prehabilitation on the transition from acute to chronic pain. That would be a powerful message. It really would. One of the things we're collecting in this big um, study we call the Acute to Chronic Pain Signatures Program is their level of physical activity prior to surgery. And that may give us some clues in that and see if that is a predictor. That's one of our primary outcome measures or predictors in the model. So we'll see if that really, if that holds up. Uh, that gets to the question of the different types of surgery. Were the findings consistent? I know you had a limited number of non-joint replacement surgeries. To the extent that the literature allows, did you get a sense that the finding of a moderate positive impact held for different types of surgery? Yeah, you know, so yeah, the majority of studies were on knee replacement. So there were only three studies that looked at other surgeries and they didn't know show an effect. So two of three studies did strength training programs prior to spinal surgery. And one of these showed an improvement in function. The third one did an aerobic and strengthening program before colorectal resection and showed an improvement in function. Anyway, so none of these showed an improvement in pain. Yeah. So we may just not have enough power to see a difference. There was a certainly not enough to do meta-analysis with these other surgeries. And thus, right now, the data is inconclusive. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And were the findings consistent across hip as well as total knee joint replacement studies? Yeah. 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 Okay, good. Let's talk a bit about your secondary outcomes. Uh, in addition to post-operative pain, you looked at function, quality of life, and complications. And you did see some significant effects. What was the, the magnitude of those effects as relative to the magnitude on post-operative pain? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. so those secondary outcomes, so mainly function and quality of life, for both function and quality of life, the effect size for those in the early stage were large or moderate, so they think they are clinically relevant difference. However, so due to heterogeneity in the studies and possible bias, so these levels of evidence was downgraded to a low. But despite this, so we believe that exercise is a low-risk intervention that may promote faster recovery in the early stages. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the effects on pain were probably clinically significant, right? They were within the range of a minimally clinically significant difference in pain. Uh, they're not huge. They're not preventing pain altogether, but you wouldn't expect exercise alone to completely prevent the effects of an acute surgical intervention. Uh, so if it's reducing it enough, that maybe it's enough to allow them to become more active and that contributes to the increase in function in some way that we're seeing in these individuals as well as quality of life. And, and quality of life, from what we can tell, as well as improvements in disability after knee, seems to really be driven by pain. So if pain is less, people perceive themselves as getting better in function, even if their functional tests remain the same as they did preoperatively. Yeah, I, as someone who has bilateral knee replacements, I can get wow. to that completely. Oh, so you understand that statement. <laughs> I do, indeed. indeed. Let's see, uh, another question about the studies. Uh, Dr. Hayashi, you mentioned that the quality was moderate to low. What were some of the most common limitations in the studies? Yes, so it is sample size. So sample size were low in most studies. And so reporting of randomization and blinding procedures was the two biggest concerns. Mm -hmm. And other things, other concerns were not reporting the low values and unclear handling of missing data. But anyway, so the sample size were really low. I think that's the biggest point. If the sample size is low, it just sets you up for a potential risk of false positives and false negatives. And, it, and it's a problem we have in clinical research and particularly in physical therapy across the board. We tend to do studies that are just hard to make conclusions from when your intervention group has 20 subjects, your control group has 20 subjects. It's not quite enough to really begin to look at the generalizability or even to account for the variability that would occur within a study group. Really feel like we need to kind of change the bar a little bit in physical therapy research. And most clinical research is not inherent to physical therapy research, but we really need to change the bar and start doing some much more adequately powered studies that will be more definitive. I, I couldn't agree more, Dr. Saluta, as a journal editor. I, uh, over the past eight years, I've been seeing that over and over again. The trials in our field are really quite small. Um, and unfortunately, I, I see that uh, some of the funding agencies, like the Foundation for Physical Therapy Research, are still funding these relatively small studies. Instead of directing the resources to a smaller number of larger studies that will have a more definitive um, conclusion, Clinical trials now at the NIH, particularly if you go into places like arthritis and musculoskeletal skin disorders or the Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, they're, they're just, they look at that. They have separate review sections to look at the quality of the trial, which includes sample size, the blinding, the randomization that is not there. And you don't get funded if you haven't thought about all of these things. And yes, they're much harder to do and they take longer to do. You know, our last randomized controlled trial, I didn't see data for four and a half years. Yep. That's hard to wait, but but we were very pleased when the data finally came out and you had an adequate sample size uh, in, your, in your intervention group, which in that case was like a hundred people for an intervention. 
And to me, you can start to really make those really help the field move forward if you can do something like that. But they are hard studies. Yeah, they are hard and it requires a cultural change. It requires multi-institutional collaborations. And those, I know from my own personal experience, those are really difficult to pull off. They are hard to do. Multi-site trials are hard to do. They take a lot of coordination. You have to have an amazing team, which I'm happy to say we do. But um, you've you've got to have the right people on board to do them. Well, I have one last question, and I think it's an important one. Uh, the literature in our field is uh, talked a lot now about the importance of specifying the content, the frequency, and the location of the interventions that we are doing and studying and, uh, and then doing clinically. And, and you mentioned, both of you already, the heterogeneity of the studies that you reviewed. What, Given that, what advice would you offer clinicians in rehabilitation who are interested in doing pre-surgical exercise interventions? What types of exercise interventions do you think we should be focusing on? So the studies in this systematic review that we based this on and had a positive effect on did both aerobic and strengthening exercises. Some did aerobic, some did strengthening, some did them combined. They did it anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks prior to surgery. But if you look at that, there wasn't one protocol that stood out beyond the others. So what we have found with exercise, and I think this kind of makes sense because what I told you before about how exercise works and that it's working through all these systems and it's working to change the central nervous system, the immune system in a more global way, that it really doesn't matter which protocol you use. We need to know what the minimal effective dose is. I don't think we know that, but we, whether you do aerobic or strengthening or some combination is probably okay. We know from other conditions like chronic low back pain and fibromyalgia and and even osteoarthritis um, prior to surgery that all exercise works and it works equally well. The key, of course, to exercise working is adherence. And if people don't do it, and they don't adhere to the protocol, then it's not gonna do you any good. So my suggestion is to really use a person-centered approach to really figure out what will work for this person in this condition that they will adhere to. It turns out most of the clinical trials on exercise, that if you go back and you look through the literature over the years, when they used to have people come into your clinic and do your exercises and, and go through those protocols, they had them come in two, three day, times a week and they were effective. Yeah. So the idea that you're going to ask somebody to do an exercise program seven days a week, maybe even two or three times a day is I think outrageous. <laughs> um, people don't do that. I don't exercise seven days a week. Our physical therapy students, maybe two of them will exercise seven days a week. So now you get somebody who's elderly going in for a total joint replacement, has never exercised a day in his life, and you want him to do those exercises twice a day for seven days, every single day. So set up the program to be successful. Give them something they can do, something that they will adhere to. Maybe it's an every other day protocol and work with them to figure out what that is. Really, really set some goals and have them learn to set those goals and really use a different 
kind of um, shared decision-making approach with the patient. And I think that is what we should be doing and less concerned about how many reps and how long we do that activity for. We should always strive for a certain level, but I think at that point, it's more important to get them to engage in it and to do it. It would be nice to see the research shed more light on the uh, the dose uh, yeah. as well as the methodology. I hear what you're saying. Your hypothesis is that the method of exercise doesn't matter. I would love to see some research that bore that out. That would be very comforting. Uh, and to know the dose. Um, this would be really important. There is research in OA and back pain and, and fibromyalgia and all these other ones. The type of exercise doesn't matter. and They've pitted multiple exercise protocols against each other and they come out equally well. But the, the, the dosing thing has been a real problem because what are you going to dose? Yeah. Are you going to dose the intensity of the exercise, the frequency of the exercise, the duration? How many weeks are you doing that exercise? There's so many variables to dose that it makes it difficult to design a trial yeah. around that. But you're right. We need to, I'd like to at least come up with what is a minimally effective dose. Well, Dr. Sluka, Dr. Hayashi, thank you both for taking the time to talk about your study. I think it's an important area and I really enjoyed the article and I would encourage our listeners to take a, a careful look at it. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy to be here. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.